0: Have people watching a baseball game in person, and I'll just throw it out there: How does that make you feel seeing fans in the stands right now in Texas?
1: Well, I have two thoughts. The first is that I, I knew this was coming, but I genuinely was moved when I heard like this lone, like very loud voice yelling "Let's go Dodgers!" and I'm not a Dodgers fan. I want the Braves to win with every fiber of my being, but hearing that one Dodger fan like so loudly, providently cheering sounded like real baseball in a way that piped in crowd noise does not. I mean, we talked about this a little bit, but when you would walk by Wrigley Field and hear the piped in crowd noise or the organ and there was nobody there, it just, uh, it seemed weird. It seemed like ghostly and weird and dystopian. And so having real fans, even just a few of them screaming was awesome. But the second time I really noticed it, and I hate this, is when I heard the tomahawk chop for the first time this season. And I was like, ugh, because fans are terrible. And the reason that we cannot have good things.
0: Yes. I mean, that, that's the risky run when you have real people involved as opposed to programmed crowd noise. Yeah. Quite literally, the first batter of game one was Ronald Acuna. And as soon as he, he stepped to the plate, you started hearing the chop in the background. And, and once I did, it was like, yeah, you know what? Fuck it. Back to quarantine. This is what we deserve. That there is nothing more humanity in 2020 than realizing we cannot go one batter without a racist chant.
1: Yeah, it's just like that's what they missed, apparently. Like the, the Braves fans were just like dying to bring back the Tomahawk Chop.
0: Which... Of course. And, and they're not even going to play the Tomahawk Chop song anymore because of the incident with the St. Louis reliever last year. So this is all going to be spontaneous and fan-prompted, and we're going to learn exactly how many people who are Atlanta Braves fans really, really just can't let go of this awful thing.
1: I mean, I don't remember the name of the podcast that did this, but I might have been like Today Explained or one of those Vox podcasts that kind of did a thing, but a few years ago, they did a short piece. It's not very long, like 20 minutes or so, on the Chief Wahoo logo in Cleveland. And they were talking to these fans who are – weirdly attached to this logo for reasons they cannot articulate, but they swear are racist. And I'm just like, please come on. (laughs) Nobody believes you. Nobody believes you. This is absurd.
0: Yeah. I remember going to a Cleveland game at Jacobs field uh, just a couple summers ago. And I think this was either the summer before or the summer after they had gotten rid of it completely. And you see outside the ballpark, usually you see the fans selling the, non-officially licensed t-shirts. And several of those are the Chief Wahoo silhouette with Save Wahoo in the middle of it. And every time I walk past, I go, that's the hill you're gonna die on? Like, this is your cause in life? Is this horrific caricature from the 1930s that you want to, to bring into present day? It, it's just, I, I, I understand being a contrarian in many ways, but why can't you just let this one thing go?
1: I'm so over contrarians. 2020 yeah. has been the year of the contrarian, and I, I am over all of them. I, yeah, I it, just it, cannot.
0: 2020 is what happens, I guess, when so many contrarians come into power and are in positions where they can make policy. And now we see that, yeah, that the contrarian effect is, yeah, you know what? I don't like when people can go outside for six months. Lay sigh. <laughs> Let us put a pin in that and jump into much happier topics shortly after the show open. This is the Three Strikes You're Out podcast part of the Outsports Podcast Network, the Outsports Baseball Podcast. My name is Ken Schultz, contributing writer to Outsports and Baseball Prospectus, and real actual stand-up comic again, which is kind of fun. Yeah, uh, this is episode number 48, which means we are now kind of diving deeper into the greatest numbers of all time in baseball history. Dig this. This is the Joe Borowski Podcast. Look him up. Great in 2003. One of the most effective closers that year. Otherwise, yeah, who knows? But the other voice you're hearing on this end of the podcast is a friend of the pod and contributor to Bleed Cubby Blue and co-host of the epically wonderful Cup of Cubby Blue podcast. Sarah Sanchez is back. Sarah, thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm trying to find some number 48 person that I care about and I, I, I've got nothing.
0: I, I was looking deep yesterday. Um, honestly, yeah, outside of Borowski, Rick Russell was one in the Cubs database that I saw
1: yeah I, I mean i've got a thing here that says lee smith but i don't think that's right that must have not been his cubs number because yeah he was 46 with
0: the cup 46 yeah, cubs. Cubs.
1: yeah so I, I don't know i got nothing i'm, I'm yeah i'll, I'll go I, i'll go with you
0: yeah let, let's go jobo i mean 2003 they don't go as far as they did without him that year Works cause for other, me. yeah because otherwise it was alfonseca and we remember what that experience was like i
1: i have Al Fonseca was one of the players that I first got to interact with the first game I saw at Wrigley Field. Oh man. Tell so, this story. Yeah. Well, cause the bullpens were like right on the field then. And I was in Chicago for my first business trip ever. I was like right out of college and I bought myself one single ticket down the third uh, down the first baseline. Uh, no third baseline. Sorry. Uh, and I was so standing. I'm like sitting right by the Cubs bullpen and he waved at me. And I just thought it was the coolest thing. And I, I just, uh-huh. it made my day. I had the most wonderful um, inaugural Wrigley Field experience ever. Sammy Sosa hit a home run to win the game. The Cubs were terrible that year. But that particular game was good. So that's I have a solid thought for Al
0: that, that Yeah, that's that's really cool. You don't, yeah, you don't hear many stories of Al Fonseca being randomly friendly. Did, did he wave at you with all six fingers then? Yes, he did. He did. <laughs> <laughs> that That is how much you're welcomed into Chicago in Wrigley Field is the guy with the one extra finger is giving you the wave. I think that's great.
1: I mean, I, I'm bummed that you can no longer have that experience of coming to your first game at Wrigley and be se- sitting like literally six feet from the entire bullpen. Which yeah. I, that was just very cool for me.
0: And that makes me think that one of the ways that the Ricketts can make money after they start letting fans back in uh, when the pandemic lifts is, uh, yeah, auction off like one spot in each bullpen where, you know, for the Cubs bullpen, you can wave and you can dance when there's a home run. And in the visiting bullpen, you can steal a Dodgers cap.
1: Hey, for that one run that the Cubs scored in the wild card round, they did an epic dancing bullpen. And I was so excited it was back. They had like inflatable toy guitars and everything. And I was thrilled. And then the offense decided to go on an 18-inning vacation and we never mm-hmm. saw them again.
0: Advert Alzalay had an inflatable banjo, an inflatable banjo. He is my new favorite hipster ever. He is, he is auditioning great. for Mumford and Sons, and I love him. But that is not why you called. Let's jump into the playoffs a bit, uh, since that is the baseball currently being played, and sadly the Cubs, eh, not so much. But uh, we will start with uh, the NLCS, which, as everybody predicted, is currently 3-1 to Atlanta Braves. We are taping this on Friday morning. Um, and last evening after the Braves knocked Clayton Kershaw out in the sixth inning and just kind of refused to make it out for about 40 minutes, you tweeted out a very interesting poll last night. Uh, would you mind sharing that with us?
1: Well, I just was sort of wondering, so, I mean, everybody who's listening knows that Kershaw, playoff Kershaw is a thing, right? Like, I can't even imagine what it's like for him. At this point, it almost strikes me as being akin to the yips or something anxiety related. He is wonderful generational talent going to the hall of fame picture of his picture of his era for the Dodgers in the regular season and the postseason is his kryptonite it hits October and Clayton Kershaw if anything goes wrong just falls apart in epic fashion his home run rate is like close to double Mm -hmm. what it is in the regular season in the postseason his walk rate is more than double In the postseason, what it is in the regular season. It it is just uncanny that this man turns into a subpar, like, I don't know if he should even start a playoff game pitcher the second October hits. And I was thinking about it because, you know, there are a lot of pitchers who are borderline Hall of Famers who show up for the postseason. They're better in the postseason than they are in the regular season. I had a particular Cub in mind when I was tweeting this particular poll, but I was talking to my dad about it after I tweeted the poll. We came up with a list of players that are kind of borderline that it's like you would obviously rather have this dude, Andy Pettit, Wainwright, Madison Bumgarner, and the guy that I was thinking of, John Lester. So John Lester has thrown 154 postseason innings. He has an ERA of 2.51. Yes, that includes that terrible Oakland start. So it's actually lower (laughs) if you're looking (laughs) at his time with just the Red Sox and the Cubs. So my question was, you have the choice to start two pitchers. So maybe this is like who you're putting on the roster. Maybe this is who you're putting in a must-win game, whatever. But you're building your postseason chances, hopes, and dreams. Do you take a borderline Hall of Famer who has thrown enough innings that you know they're just nails in the postseason? Or do you take a generational talent who has proven over again enough innings that you can tell, because Clayton Kershaw has 172 postseason innings at this point, you know it's going to blow up. That you know the second Andrew Tolles doesn't catch a ball, something Mm. is going to fall apart. And I got to tell you, I'm going Lester, Wainwright, Nadbum, Pettit, all the time, every day.
0: Yeah, uh, Throw out another name for you when you're listing that off, uh, El Duque. Like, he was the guy for those Yankees teams in the late late 90s, early 2000s. And he was, I mean, not even, honestly, like, close to borderline Hall of Famer in terms of regular season because he regularly put up, like, ERAs in the low to mid-fours. So he was, you know, good, and certainly for that era, very passable. But when it became the postseason, you could not touch him, and especially in the the most harrowing situations, like – I remember when the White Sox were making their run in 2005, and it was clear they were going to win their division. And I told one of my Sox fan friends that, you know, you've got El Duque on there, which means, you know, he's clearly running toward the finish line during the regular season because he was well into his decline phase at that point. But come the postseason, you're going to be very, very happy he's on there. And in that very first series against the Red Sox, I think it was game three, they loaded up the bases the Red Sox did with nobody out in, I want to say, like the fifth or sixth with like the top of the order due up and they brought El Duque in and they couldn't touch him. Like it was three up, three down. And then that was it. The the White Sox swept and then went on to steamroll through the ALCS and world series. So yeah, in terms of postseason, when you have somebody who is that reliable, uh, I would definitely pick over someone like Kershaw, which is, is bizarre to say because any other context, uh, you would go with Kersh. And, and the really frustrating thing that I think about, um, for Dodger fans at this point is that Kershaw does occasionally give you that Clayton Kershaw start in the postseason like game two against the Cubs for example where he shut them out one nothing game one of the World Series in 2017 where he outdueled Verlander like he will show up but from start to start you just can't be sure if you're going to get that Clayton Kershaw or the one where you reach the fifth inning and go, I hope they pull him early because if you leave him in for three more batters, he's going to get crushed.
1: Well, and this is the wild thing because I actually last night after watching Kershaw implode yet again, ended up watching parts of the Cubs game six NLCS when just because part of me wanted to see that implosion happen real. I wanted to remember exactly what had happened and mm-hmm. all of the moving parts of it. And the thing that is really interesting here, you should not be talking about, oh, we can only get five innings from our ace. That's not a conversation you should be having. In fact, at the top of that 2016 NLCS, one of the things that's really funny is that Smoltz makes a comment that Kyle Hendricks can give his all during this game because he's not going to be here in the seventh inning. And he sort of says that as if, like, Kershaw's obviously going to be here in the seventh (laughs) inning, but Kyle Hendricks is not. Well, (laughs) Kyle Hendricks was pitching in the eighth inning, and, and Clayton Kershaw was done in the fifth. And Kyle Hendricks, by the way, is another dude I would put in a game seven must win situation every single time. I do not think that Kyle Hendricks is on a Hall of Fame trajectory. I think that we could, we'll have to talk about that more later as we see how his career develops and everything. He's got a, he's got a chance, but like everybody has a chance, but he's not Kershaw, right? He's not Scherzer. He's not Verlander. He's not one of those elite pitchers. But when you look back, if you look back at the teams who have managed to win it all during this decade, Most of those teams didn't have a Scherzer or a Kershaw. Like the Cubs didn't have that. Mm -hmm. The Red Sox didn't have that. The Cardinals in 2011 certainly didn't have that. I went back and looked at who was starting games for the Cardinals in the 2011 World Series. Like Jaime Garcia, Chris Carpenter, uh, Edwin Jackson. Edwin Jackson! Edwin freaking Jackson. I was like, come on. What is even going on here? The Royals didn't have that guy. The Giants didn't really have that guy. The Giants had Madison Bumgarner who mm-hmm. is a borderline case just like a John Lester. I mean, it makes me think that you got to have people who can show up in October. And one of the things I, you know, love or hate what the Cubs did with the rotation and what they've done with it over the over how that's developed over previous seasons. Jake Arrieta, Kyle Hendricks, John Lester, they can show up in October. You do not have to worry about them.
0: Yeah, and especially with a team like the 2016 Cubs, where if you had any kind of, uh, I guess, I don't want to call it softness, but if there was any kind of self-doubt that was that was baked into it, like that particular Cubs team going up against the 108-year drought would amplify the self-doubt to the point where it would crush you, which we saw back in 2008, uh, where, you know, that was the last team that was anointed as the greatest ever, the one that's going to Bring bring our make our dreams come true and put an end to to our misery, and they couldn't make it out of the fifth inning of game one without being crushed by that. So yeah, it's 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 definitely. I I I don't want to say it. It's hard to like describe it exactly because it's it's not really a skill so much as a trait. Maybe the kind of player who is able to acknowledge that that noise is out there, but also say. I don't give a shit. I'm still going to be who I am and I'm going to put my signature on this. It's, it's, I think it's, I, I call it kind of the big poppy syndrome. Cause that's what David Ortiz was better at than just about anybody that I could think because he performed for the most part up to who he was as a player. But in the context of especially Boston leading up to 2004, that is almost a superpower to shut out that level of nonsense and that level of distraction and be the kind of player you are. And, uh, yeah, Kershaw, as as you say at the top, this is his kryptonite, and his kryptonite is he's kind of human, I guess.
1: But only in October. I mean, right. David Ortiz is really interesting to me because I, you know, we're getting ourselves into dangerous territory here with the sabermetricians. Clutch isn't a thing, yada yada. It's just like the, it's just noise and statistics, whatever. David Ortiz is probably the most clutch baseball player in history. Mm-hmm. Madison Bumgarner is the postseason pitching equivalent of David Ortiz, in my opinion, the dude is just going to show up. And I, like you said, it, it, it is a trait. And I, you know, soft is a word that actually was in my head too. And I hate saying that because the Dodgers are a juggernaut. Like, Mookie Betts is great. Clayton Kershaw is great. No. Like, Justin Turner is great. Like, these are, these are awesome players that I don't understand why they can't get it done. They can't get it done. I don't know what it is. But for whatever reason, Ozzy Albies is showing up right now. Freddie yeah. Freeman is showing up right now. Ronald Acuna Jr. is showing up right now, and Clayton Kershaw got run in the fifth.
0: Mm -hmm. Sixth, uh, sixth. fifth? I don't know. Sixth, yeah. After Uh, five uh, innings, sorry. That's all right, yeah. Uh, But, I mean, and this is something that we talked about uh, over Twitter messages last night, that so many of Kershaw's appearances where he does the Kershaw thing in the postseason are the result, in retrospect, of Don Mattingly or Dave Roberts sticking with him one inning too long. Like last night, it was the sixth. Last year, it was in relief after he got out of, I think it was the eighth, and gave up the back-to-back home runs to tie the game to the Nationals. Uh, you can remember going back to the Matt Adams home run, and I want to say 2013 against the Cardinals. Uh, this, that, that's one of the constants, is managers thinking he's capable of doing more than his endurance allows in October. And as I posted to you last night, when was the last time anyone ever said that about somebody like John Lester? And you gave the answer.
1: Oh yeah, it was when he was an A. That one time when it became very clear that he couldn't throw to first, and he had a really bad postseason start. And then it didn't even matter after that. It's like John Lester just figured it out. He's like, "Well, I can't throw to first, but I'm still going to be nails in the postseason." So mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I, I almost want it to stop. Like, I, the only time Kershaw being postseason Kershaw is good is when it's against like your favorite team. It's painful to watch. It's painful to watch him have these moments again and again a friend sent me a picture of you know him kind of hanging his head in the dugout from 2019 and it occurred to me there is a picture like that for almost every postseason for the last however many years Kershaw has been in it like that that the moment after he gives up the home run to Rizzo against the Cubs and he like just squats down on the ground and like his head is in his hands and you Mm -hmm. can just see him breaking in front of 40,000 fans that moment has happened every single postseason. And I'm, I, it's, it hurts to see, and I'm not even a Dodger fan. I just, I want that to stop.
0: Yeah, that's like the famous Bart Simpson quote of, look, Lisa, if you pause it right here, you can see the exact moment when his heart rips in half. And yeah, <laughs> I, I I loathe the Kershaw narrative as much as anyone. And, and that's, unfortunately, that's become a part of what these pictures are about, is him realizing, I mean, he knows what the narrative surrounding him is at this point. And every time he has one of these outings, it's a realization of, yeah, and I just added on to it yet again. I it, It's it's this weird, almost curse that he's, that he's, his burden to bear, that he is the pitcher of this generation, but he can't escape this one thing that follows him year after year. And unfortunately, because the Dodgers are so great, he's given opportunity year after year after year to add to this. And that's the thing too, what I realized about this, that the Dodgers are clearly the team of, this particular era when you talk about eight division titles in a row and especially the past four years where they have just steamrolled year after year after year in the NL West and are clearly the best team in baseball. And yet I would not trade places with Dodger fans for all the money in the world at this point.
1: Oh, winning that one world series in 2016 was, that was what I needed. And I, do I want the Cubs to win another one? Yes. Am I, I think we're going to have to wait a couple of years, maybe Two to five to get back in position to do that. I'm okay with it. Mm-hmm. I that one World Series will carry me through the next decade. If that's all I ever get was to say that I was in Chicago like blocks away from Wrigley Field when the Cubs won it all, I, I'm okay with that. <laughs> I needed I needed that one. And but I would rather be a Cubs fan with my team having shown up super disappointingly against the. Marlins of all freaking, teams. like, don't even get me started on the Marlins. I did a whole um, episode
0: two weeks ago. Yep.
1: I, yeah, I just, I, I cannot. I'm like, they had the second worst bullpen in baseball. You couldn't score off their bullpen. Like, I don't, Brandon Kinsler may made, made do all look silly and that's insanity. Um, anyway, but I would rather be a Cubs <laughs> fan having lost that, those wild card games in just embarrassing fashion because mm-hmm. we won in 2016 than be a Dodger fan who is – I don't even know if they can have fun in the postseason anymore. I think they're all so nervous and feel so, like, so much pressure about being this juggernaut that can't win that – I don't know. Are they even having fun? Like, I look at my Dodger friends on Twitter and Facebook, and I I don't think they're having fun right now.
0: (laughs) And I understand it completely because, I mean, it's one thing to have postseason frustration as the Cubs have had over the past three or four years – And as we're getting to this point, as you referred to earlier, where the window is clearly closing, but you look back on it and go, oh, okay, so they got only one. Yeah, they probably could have gotten more, but nobody in this era is, you know, a Yankee-style juggernaut like we think of from even 15 or 20 years ago. But when you don't have that one, when you don't have it, when you have a team that hasn't run through the finish line yet and is on this extended run, especially at this point now, you start thinking how many more shots do we have with this group before it closes and we might have nothing at all? Yankees fans are going through the same thing right now online. You saw after uh, after Tampa Bay took it to them in the last series, Like so many of them are starting to think, okay, like is this now on the downside? Do we get nothing at all? They don't even get a World Series appearance. Aw,
1: poor yeah. Yankees. Yeah. I'm, so, I'm so sad. I'm so <laughs> sad for the Yankees. Uh, I just, you know, watching the Rays blow up the Death Star was just – Oh, tears.
0: <laughs> yeah, we, we will jump to the ALCS in a minute here because I, I got some speaks about that. But I, we should give the Braves a bit of love too uh, because, I mean, all the credit in the world to what they're doing right now. Um, the narrative going into this series was that, sure, you shut out the Reds and you shut out the Marlins, but now you're going up against the best offense in baseball. Let's see what you got. And uh, Max Freed, Ian Anderson, and Bryce Wilson – are the new Maddox Smoltz-Glavin? Is this a thing?
1: No, they're not. But they're, no. they're pitching that way right now. And frankly, like, I'd rather have Max Freed doing what Max Freed is doing right now than Clayton Kershaw in a must-win game. So I, I will say this: a couple things about the Braves. One, the Braves are fun. Uh, in that game where they got blown out and it was like the Dodgers unleashed 11 runs in the first inning and the game was basically over, there's this moment, and I can't remember what inning or exactly what player it was, where... Somebody, it looks like somebody's hit a home run, but it goes foul. However, he like bat flips before you realize it goes yeah. foul. And there were a bunch of people on Twitter making fun of this. Like, you can't bat flip a foul ball or whatever. I was like, I have made the right rooting decision. I love this kid. They're down 15 runs. He's like, I'm going to bat flip this foul ball. I was like, that's great. Have fun. Do it. Like, it didn't work out, but that's okay. That's why this Braves team is winning right now because they're bat flipping foul balls. Yeah. And the Dodgers are playing like they have a hundred and eight-year-old curse on their back and they don't because their curse what, 1988? Was it 1988? Yes. So I mean they have, you know, it's been a while, but they're not anywhere near the pressure that those Cubs teams of the past had. But I have watched enough Cubs baseball and enough Cubs baseball during the like dark era to know what that feels like when you have the weight of a century on your back. And that's how the Dodgers are playing right now. And the Braves okay. are not. The Braves are playing with house money and they're up 3-1 as a result.
0: Yeah, and when you play a team that's that loose and you're that tight, yeah, it really shows up in the contrast. You've got Ronald Acuna high-stepping into home plate yesterday as they just kept scoring and scoring in the sixth. Uh, You have um, Marcel Ozuna involving Ron Washington, the third base coach, in the pantomime selfie celebration after his home run. So, yeah, even... You know, grouchy Freddie Freeman, who criticized Acuna in the playoffs last year for having fun, is, is waving to his kid uh, next to the dugout after yet another hit. Uh, and this, by the way, this seems to be Freddie Freeman's year of making everyone realize, oh, yeah, he's been this good for a really long time, and now we just get to see it on national TV. So, yeah, good on you, Freddie. Go off. But, yeah, it, it's that, that contrast of a team that is just loose as hell, and loving the fact that they're in the NLCS versus one where almost being in the NLCS is a burden at this point. And, and you see it. And I, I, I'm going to throw a an old reference at you, uh, but I think you'll catch this one. The Dodgers have not won a World Series since Tommy Lasorda lost the weight. So I'm going to call this the curse of ultra slim fast. <laughs> Get it patented. Let's go.
1: I've got nothing. I mean, I, I get the reference. Like, I've got nothing.
0: Yeah, you, you don't have to have anything. That's Curses it.
1: need names, so you, you've coined it. We'll see if we can get it trending on Twitter.
0: Yes, hashtag Curse of Ultra Slim Fast. I will use my my massive influence and my thousand followers. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll show them. So let us jump to the American League, uh, where right now uh, what we thought was going to be a series that Tampa Bay had in hand— Uh, now starting to get a little uncomfortable. Maybe the Houston Astros won the last two games and are looking at pulling a 2004 Red Sox. I will open this up by saying the 2020 Astros are exponentially more loathsome than the 2004 Red Sox. And the 2004 Red Sox had Kurt Schilling. Oh,
1: this Astros team is hateable. Um, And they are thriving on hate and they're pulling all of their late inning wins out of like some, it's like the dark side of the force, right? <laughs> like the Braves, I'm sorry, sorry to keep doing these Star Wars references, but like the Braves are like the rebels and the Astros are definitely uh, the dark side of the force.
0: Yeah, if, if I can uh, ju- uh, pile onto that, it's not just the dark side of the force. The Astros, especially guys like Carlos Correa saying, well, what are they going to say now? The Astros are the whiny Anakin from episode two. The Astros are going off about how much they hate sand. Like that. that is is how just, yeah, the extent of how much I cannot take any more Houston Astros in the postseason. And it feels like this year, especially with the extended playoffs, we did a lot of work to get the Cardinals out in the first round and get the Marlins out in the last round. But it feels like we just can't shake Houston like, and and make this a tolerable World Series at this point?
1: Well, I mean, a tolerable World Series is obviously the Braves and the Rays. That That is the series that all people who love good and honor and baseball want. I think the only people who don't want that series live in LA and Houston. Everybody else wants the Braves and Rays World Series. Oh, and maybe not the MLB executives because they, you know, media markets and all that jazz, but whatever, you're just gonna have to deal with it. I wanna talk about the Rays for a second, Yep. Because the Rays do not get a ton of love, and I have been trying to figure out why, and I, and I think I've stumbled upon something. The Rays are not a sexy team, and they don't really have a person that, like, like if you, if you start, start to think about, like, who's everybody's most exciting player? Who's every team's most exciting player? Like Javi Byens for the Cubs, or maybe Wilson Contreras, if you're me. And, like, you're like, those are exciting dudes. They have a lot of energy. They're doing fun stuff, whatever. Ronald Acuna. Ozzie Albies, the Dodgers, Max Muncie. like Muncy's going to tell you to go, tell Mad Bone to go get the baseball he just crushed out of the ocean, right? Like, <laughs> Kershaw, Kershaw's a fun player, right? Like, he's, he's kryptonite in the postseason, but he's a fun player, right? Like, these, these are fun players, they're identifiable, you know who they are, no matter who you cheer for. The Rays don't really have that. Their front office strategy of, like, maximizing talent other people have passed on has given them a really great squad, But it's a really great squad of guys who are kind of like, I feel like if I passed them, like they were having a team dinner somewhere, and I kind of saw them out of the corner of my eye, I'd be like, these guys look familiar, but I don't know from where. And (laughs) I write about baseball, and I don't know that i recognize them.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting phenomenon. And I talked a little bit about it, I think, on last week's episode, that every time the Rays are good – uh, it's more a feeling of when they get to the playoffs you watch and go oh okay this guy's going off now as opposed to anticipating anybody but given that uh and given how the Rays went off especially in the first three games of this series it's like you're discovering that these guys are fun but it's in retrospect as opposed to looking forward to seeing that you're so you look back and go oh Randy Orozarena is having the two weeks of his life and hitting six home runs in In 10 games or whatever oh much to the
1: chagrin of cardinals fans
0: yes yes it's it's nice how how does it feel cardinal fans to know that somebody else might have more devil magic it's capitalist devil magic working on the cardinals this time around Uh
1: i mean i'm sorry i just have i just have to laugh because i i've watched a lot of cardinals people were like why isn't rosarana getting more playing time what is going on (laughs) they just let him go it's like oh look at look at this here's rosarana
0: yeah huh weird how that works yeah it's it's not so much fun watching other teams do it for once that uh, uh, G man Choi is, is someone who is, you know, doesn't put up great numbers by any means, but every time you watch him, it, it's like, this guy is having the maximum amount of fun on a baseball field. Uh, he's, whether he's, you know, doing that weird stomping dance in the dugouts when somebody's celebrating or, or just being expressive and going off at a great moment. Um, and then, especially in a game three of this series, the Ray defense like there were four or five moments in game three where I was just like I was doing an NBA bench warmer hype man. Oh, like Kevin Kiermeyer leaping catches at the wall. Uh, Hunter Renfro, two diving catches. Uh, by the way, Kevin Kiermaier, I will submit as evidence that the Rays are kind of sexy, but in the very explicit form of that, uh, of that term. Uh, but uh, just going to throw that out there. But, it's not
1: yeah. really my type, but I, I
0: get it. Yeah, but not not the sexy in terms of stat, not stat sexy, but uh actual sexy, which I'm okay with. Uh so the Rays, yeah, they do these fun, amazing things, but they yeah, they don't have any guy that really like that draws you in. So it's it's interesting to kind of think of them as a team that's so enjoyable to watch, but there's no transcendence there. Uh
1: right. Like I feel like this. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they'll get to the World Series and there'll be a couple of breakout moments and we'll be like, oh, yes, those were the insert player X name Rays. I just, they feel kind of generic to me. And I it's weird to say that about a team that has been really fun to watch that's playing good fundamental baseball. I mean, I loved them taking out the Yankees. I mm-hmm. loved exactly how it happened. Like have a nice off season or Aldis Chapman. Yep. Like I, I thought that was brilliant, but I just... There's something, it's not the, the star power factor. You know what? Let me, let me put this slightly differently. The Tampa Bay Rays are the Major League Baseball Commissioner's Office worst nightmare. Mm-hmm. They are a team that is analytically sound, that will win baseball games, that should show up in prime, t- prime time, that doesn't have a very marketable star.
0: And they're also Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred's worst nightmare because they like baseball. And we know he can't have that.
1: Rob Manfred does hate baseball.
0: Does indeed. Uh, And so one of the ways that they're approaching the postseason is through this endlessly killer bullpen. And I've kind of got a theory, especially because right now that Houston's made it a series. It's something that I've kind of gone back to ever since 2016, really, uh, and the greatest World Series of all time, that... One of the reasons that I think the Cubs ended up winning and coming back from a 3-1 deficit. Uh, yeah, by the way, did you know the Cubs came back from 3-1 deficit in 2016 and won the World Series?
1: I, I've heard that a time or two. I, I, I vaguely remember LeBron James Yeah. talking about 3-1 series.
0: Mm, yeah, yeah. People do seem to forget that. And it's unfortunate because you'd think that would be at the top of people's minds. but. I think the reason one of the biggest reasons the Cubs won that is because it was a seven game series. And the key to winning that series was going back to our guy, Johnny Lesta, winning game five, because once it became a long series in Cleveland strategy of just three starting pitchers and then Andrew Miller uh, and uh, the Corey, who by the hell can I think of his last name now, Uh, the closer from Cleveland that year.
1: Kluber. Kluber. No, Corey Kluber. Sorry. Kluber, yeah. I don't, Cody, I'm sorry. Cody I, was, Allen, Jesus Christ. I was trying to look up something about the Rays and the Astros, and I didn't even – I missed the reference you were yeah, trying that's, that's, to
0: get, yeah, get it, me to
1: Yeah, to Cody use. Allen
0: was what I was going Cody
1: about. Allen,
0: yeah. Uh, brief 2020 Cub minor leaguer Cody Allen. But the, their strategy of using those two guys to make it essentially a four or five-inning game before you bring in the killer bullpen – works really well in a short series because you can have guys throwing short starts and then leaning on your, your killer bullpen guys for long outings. But once it becomes a six or seven gamer, then you start seeing guys like Miller tire out and you see moments like David Ross taking him deep to center. And you see uh, Corey Kluber, who had to go on short rest twice, have a very ineffective game seven. So that's when the strategy really starts backfiring on you And right now we're entering a game six and I'm looking at Tampa Bay and it's not like their bullpens imploding, but I'm looking at Nick Anderson in particular who was their Andrew Miller throughout the regular season, 0.55 ERA, one home run allowed in 19 games. And he's allowed two home runs in both of his LCS games after that epic, I think almost 40 pitch appearance against the Yankees in game five, they leaned on him heavy. And both his appearances, he took the loss yesterday, have been mediocre to very subpar in game two. So I'm thinking that right now, Tampa, this this is when their strategy of bullpenning might start to get a bit dicier than they'd like for him, unfortunately.
1: Well, it it exposes pitchers who don't have deep arsenals. Like the reason those bullpen guys are good is because they have like two pitches that are super plus that they're throwing at you all the time, right? Right. And that's really hard to hit when you only see them once a year or, like, once every other couple months. It's a lot easier when you're seeing them for the third or fourth time in a week. And one of the things about this particular playoff series that will go away in the World Series, but there have been no off days. So right. pitchers are also getting exposed in that way. Position players are used to playing in, a, like, the, an everyday situation. Pitchers are not like the bullpen, bullpen management is different when there are no off days and pitcher rotation management is different when there are no off days. And I just think that particular element of this season has made the playoffs real weird too.
0: Yes, it has. And especially because we're also at a point in the playoffs where starters are just not completing more than five innings at a time. Like I think it was uh game four of this series where, uh, both Greinke and Tyler Glass now went six innings. Now, as they said on TV, was the first time in the entire American League playoffs where both starters had gone at least six. So you're running up against an era where starters, if, if they give you five, you feel lucky and you have no off days. So that means you're having to have your bullpen pitch for almost half of every game and you can't space it out. So you're going to have some guys in there that you really don't want like your your loops of the world uh, from Tampa that they've talked about on TV. That in an ideal world, Loop I think it's Aaron Loop would not be pitching in this particular situation. But this is where we are in 2020, so it, it might be the most 2020 thing that you're using Aaron Loop at the most crucial times of the game. Sometimes because it's this year.
1: 2020, man. I'm so I'm so over it.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: we need to we need to close the vortex. <laughs> We've been sucked into a terrible timeline and we all need to get out.
0: Yeah. Uh, let's, let's jump off that for a second. Uh, let's assume that next year arrives and at some point maybe there's a vaccine like Fauci is promising. Your first game going to Wrigley Field, when you walk through the concourse and you see the ivy in front of you and cloudless blue, blue sky field laid out immaculately, What's your response going to be?
1: Oh, I'm definitely going to cry. But I cry when I see Wrigley Feel normally. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I'm a sap. So if I walk out and I see, like, the whole expanse and everything, I tear up a little bit because I'm totally that girl. Nice. Um, I mean, I y'all have video proof. I, I teared up the first time I heard the organ when I didn't know... <laughs> what what, that it was coming when they were had the new organist practicing in like March or April and I happened to walk up that way um to take a break in my afternoon and I could hear it as I was getting towards the L and I was like I know that sound that's the sound of baseball and I like I took a quick little Twitter video and I was definitely about to cry like it's very obvious that there were tears so I'm gonna cry um I I don't know what 2021 baseball looks like. I think it maybe looks a lot like what they're doing in the LCS, at least in the early months, because I, even if you have a vaccine, say in January or February or March, I think it takes a while to get the population vaccinated. And frankly, like, I am not part of the first group of people who is going to be vaccinated. And, and that's good. I mean, I am a person who can work from home, who lives by myself, and I'm not in a super high risk category. So I think that they probably have to be really um, deliberate about vaccinating first responders, teachers, people with pre-existing conditions, people who need that vaccine first. I've, sorry, I've done way too much reading about this type of stuff and those strategies are out there and they exist and hopefully somebody very smart is managing that and it's not just a thing that um, is only available to the super rich like so many things in our capitalist system. But if that's the case, I mean, I just sort of envision even if there is a vaccine, I'm not getting it until well into the summer of 2021 and possibly the fall of 2021. And I'm, you know, mentally trying to prepare myself for that. Now that said, I, you know, the people who are at the LCS obviously have not been vaccinated. They're going into ballparks, getting their temperature checked, wearing, wearing a mask, at least most of some of the time, I don't know. Some of them are wearing the mask most of the time, and some of them are wearing the mask in interesting ways. Um, So I think that early baseball probably looks like that. I think that if there are fans at spring training, it looks like that. I think that MLB owners are pretty desperate to get that revenue stream back. I think the place where this gets most interesting actually is what the trade market looks like in the off season and what the free agent market looks like in the off season because I just have no way of predicting what players can reasonably expect to get in terms of contracts and what types of deals – are actually going to be out there for teams to make given the uncertainty and unique nature of the situation. And so one of the things that Andy and I were just talking about on Cup of Cubby Blue is that, you know, you look at this Cubs team, the offense obviously needs to be refashioned in some way. And in a normal baseball season, you would say, well, that means they got to trade some people and get some new pieces in and do this, that, and the other thing. I'm not sure they can Like, I'm not sure the market exists for them to make those moves. I'm not entirely convinced that anybody wants to make those deals off of a 60-game sample size. So it's going to be really interesting to see what that winds up looking like.
0: Yeah, and this is coming off of two straight off seasons where it's essentially been what you just described, where they go into the offseason saying, yeah, we know that the offense broke. We know that we can't just keep throwing the same thing out there and expecting different results. And yet it comes to April and, oh, look, it's the same thing being thrown out there. And we know that MLB owners in the past two off seasons, even before there was a pandemic hovering over everything, were tightening up the purse strings and were not throwing long-term contracts out at more than a few Garrett Coles of the world. And now that they have an excuse to not spend money, every damn owner in baseball, except for maybe the new Mets guy, is going to take it. (laughs) <laughs> so maybe uh, uh, just off the top of my head, maybe the lesson here is, yeah, if you're going to look to trade some with somebody, yeah, let's look to the Mets and see, see if we can convince them to do something.
1: At the risk of getting put on blast on Twitter, although I doubt anybody's going to re- listen to this and, like, at him into my mentions, at least this means, in my opinion, that the Cubs are totally out on the Trevor Bauer sweepstakes, yeah. and thank God. Yeah. So I don't want that guy here. I don't want him. I, I, don't, I can't even imagine. I might have to take a few-year hiatus from covering this team if Trevor Bauer was a member of it. And so please stay far, far away. And frankly, I think it is telling that there is an individual in baseball who every – Almost every, I should say almost every, because I'm sure there's somebody out there who isn't on this team. But, like, almost every woman who writes about sports does not want this dude on their team.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's noticed the pattern. So, yeah, it's it's like, okay, we hate your we hate how cheap you've been, Ricketts, for the past three years, but if you could strategically apply your spendthriftness to this one particular player, we will tip your hat. Yeah, we will tip our hats to you. Uh, so we <laughs> just couldn't afford it. Anything to plug while I've still got you here?
1: Uh, No, not at the moment. I mean, we are about to start our world series coverage at cup of cubby blue next week. You will definitely want to hang out with us for that. You can follow us on Twitter at, at cup of cubby blue. And we put the latest episode up at the top there. Every time it drops, they drop weekly when the Cubs are not playing and every series when the Cubs are playing and you know, I, uh, over the pandemic, when there was no baseball, I sort of kept a diary of what a life without baseball in a neighborhood built around baseball looked like. I imagine I'll have a similar type of project this offseason, just sort of seeing what goes on in an offseason that's unlike any other. And I, the thing that I am most interested in right now, and I'll be doing a lot of reading about this in the offseason, so if anybody ever wants to chat about it on Twitter, by all means, hit me up at PCB underscore Sarah. The... CBA negotiations start after the 2021 season. And I have no idea what to expect there, except I will say they already looked contentious. They looked contentious before the bottom fell out of baseball in 2020. And it doesn't look like things are that much better for 2021. So I just think that we're going into a period where, let me just tell you people, learn about the history of labor and baseball. And you're really going to need to get deep into some of this, like, union contract negotiating stuff because I think that is that is the story for the next few years for Major League Baseball.
0: Yeah, and uh, Marvin Miller just made the Hall of Fame this year, and he is a very good place to start if you want to learn on that. Uh, your uh, day without baseball diary during this protracted offseason was the very definition of a must-read. So if you're bringing that back once we get finished with this season, uh, that's maybe the best possible news I could get this offseason. Sarah, that's great.
1: Probably something like that i don't know if i'll call it a life without baseball something we'll,
0: yeah
1: we'll figure it out
0: yeah as long as you're writing that's that's the important part i think uh and so yeah sarah sanchez it's like watching ronald lucuna high stepping into home plate this has been a joy
1: always fun thanks for having me Ken.